long journey through the Gospel of Luke, recounting the life of Christ. Today we find ourselves once again in Luke chapter 11. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, I hope you do, please find your way to Luke chapter 7. And we'll be picking up in verse 14 today. And I want to start out with just a very simple question that each of us ought to consider as we look to the example that Luke puts before us here in this passage here today. And it is, what if you are wrong about Jesus? That's ultimately going to be the theme that Luke calls out here as he presents for us some individuals who very much have a wrong sort of perception of Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, how that ought to impact their very lives. And I just want to share with you as we kind of get into the thought pattern of thinking about what it's like to be wrong about something, I want to share with you a, a kind of humorous sort of experience in my own life. Around the year 2000, I was in school in, in Chapel Hill at UNC, and I decided that I was going to venture into the world of computer science. Now, I had enrolled in Chapel Hill with the idea that I was going to be a pre-med student. I thought I was going to be a, a medical doctor once I got done with school. But, you know, I enrolled, and I took a couple of those entry-level chemistry and biology classes, and, and then I, I worked my way through. At, in the same time, I had a grandfather who was encouraging me. He said, you know, there's a couple of fields out there that are really thriving right now, and you ought to consider the fields of computer science or software engineering, which that's kind of the degree that associates with that, or, or industrial-type engineering, because those are just areas that, you know, he had seen some, some real growth in. And so I got involved, and I thought, you know, I'll take a class in computer science. And I came with, with no context. I, you know, I had not done any programming before that point. Uh, I had never developed my first software application. So I stepped into this thing pretty new, pretty wet behind the ears, as you might explain it uh, in some context. And so here I am, stepping into this context, first-time developer, taking classes. And, and another interesting thing you should know about me is that my attendance habits while I was in my undergraduate years were not the greatest, okay? If I went to a, if I went to a course and I, you know, went to the first lecture or two and I realized that, you know, I, I'm just not going to get a lot out of being here and being present, what I would do is I would take my books and I would go to the library and I would learn on my own from the books as opposed to going and hearing from the professor. And so I would kind of line up on my calendar, here's where the exams are, and I'll tell you, like, Three years after I graduated, I can still remember waking up thinking, oh, no, is it an exam day? <laughs> because that was sort of my mentality. Right? I had to make sure I was going to be there in the classroom for the exam days, but the other days were pretty lax, and I was learning most things from the books. Well, as I was getting started out in this computer science degree, I had another guy who was in my dorm on my hall who was taking the same introductory class to computer science that I was taking, and we had an assignment that I knew that he would be working on as well, but it was an assignment that had to do with cues, okay? A cue is just a first-in, first-out sort of structure. You might talk about that in the workplace, right? We're going to cue things up. I mean, we're going to kind of, you know, we're going to put it on the, the stack of things to do, and then we're going to pull the, the oldest of those and make sure we take care of that. Well, you use the same term in computer science, but I, with my elaborate Stokes County education... Had, I don't think I had ever heard the word Q before, okay? And the way that is spelled, it's an awkwardly spelled word. It's spelled Q-U-E-U-E, -E, okay? And so we were doing an assignment for Qs. We were developing these data structures which should take tasks in, kind of queue them up, and then send the oldest of those out so that it can be processed. But when I went down the hall to talk to my fellow student, I had again in mind only the book smarts of what I'd read with this Q-U-E-U-E -U -E word. And so I, I went and I encountered a guy who was falling on the floor laughing when I asked him about the assignment on Quayways, okay? <laughs> and I'll tell you this, I never again used the word Quayway in front of my peers, because I learned from that experience that this good book knowledge that I had built up was a wrong understanding. I had a wrong understanding of what this word was, how it was supposed to be pronounced. Well, when we come to verse 14 of Luke chapter 11, 
We find that Jesus carries out a miraculous healing of a demon-possessed man. And the demon which had possessed this man was a mute demon. That's what we'll read here in just a moment. And after Jesus cast this demon out of this man, this mute man, this man who was previously unable to speak, was suddenly liberated to the point where he could speak. And all the crowds of people who followed Jesus from place to place, but in this particular place, all the crowds of people around him were amazed, as any of us would be, in the midst of a miracle like that. Because that's an awesome display of God's power. But in this passage that we're going to look at here today, Luke doesn't draw our attention to the miracle. I mean, as amazing as that would be, as amazing as it would be to see, to see God through his power driving out the minions of Satan that had control over an individual's life, Luke just uses one verse of this passage to explain that great miracle. What Luke draws our attention to instead is the verses that follow in which we find these misperceptions of those who were in the crowd, the misperceptions of those who had witnessed that miracle. These were individuals who had a certain degree of knowledge. They all had their own education about God. They were all coming from their own experiences and their own backgrounds and their own traditions. They'd all been to the library. It's as if they'd all been reading their own textbooks. And they had their own understandings about how God worked and who Jesus was. But now, as they came together, some of them found that their own understandings were being challenged. And my friends, if you spend some time studying the life and the teachings of the Lord Jesus, you're often going to find things that he did or said that challenged the things that you previously thought you knew about him. For some individuals, that can wreck their religion. That's certainly what happened with the individuals that we're going to see in today's passage. And as Luke drops us into the midst of this bustling crowd here on this dusty road between Galilee and Jerusalem today, I believe that there's a God-ordained objective that he has in mind for those of us who read these truths in the gospel. Because Luke shows us here a number number of individuals who were wrong about Jesus. And as we examine their plight, there's a question that all of us need to be willing to answer ourselves. And here's the question. What if you're wrong about Jesus? What if what you think you know or, or what you think you need from Jesus is wrong? The question I really have for all of us is this. Are we really interested in knowing the truth? Are you willing to align your life to this truth? Well, that's the take-home question behind the narrative of Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. So join me now as we look at the circumstances of those who were wrong about Jesus. And let's stand together to honor the reading of God's word. If you are able, Luke 11, verse 14, here we read, And he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. 
But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man and passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. As I mentioned, this passage begins with a miracle there in verse 14, but that miracle has to deal with a demon that is being driven out by Jesus. And I don't want to dwell here for too long because this is ultimately not where the word dwells in this passage, but there are a few interesting insights that we can glean related to demons from this passage that I just want to briefly mention for you. Now, we've already talked about demons several times as we studied through Luke because we've seen Jesus engaging with demon-possessed individuals at various points. But I'll just recap a little bit and summarize by saying that demons are evil spirits and they are fallen angels who fell with Satan in his rebellion against the Most High. There are many, many of these fallen angels. And some of them that fell are bound in a place called the abyss until the time of the last days when according to Revelation 9 they will be released to roam about the earth and to wreak havoc. Still others of these fallen angels are free at the present time to go about on the earth doing Satan's bidding. And in this passage we're reminded that demons can possess human individuals. Otherwise, how would Jesus be able to drive a demon out of this individual? And what we find the consistent testimony of in Scripture, when a demon possesses an individual, he drives that individual to destroy himself or herself. Demons have this plight against humanity that they are seeking the destruction of their hosts. We also see in verse 26 that some demons are actually more evil than others. That's why Jesus can say that the demon who leaves this house swept clean brings back seven other spirits more evil than itself. Now that's a hard thing for me to comprehend, but I'm just giving you the clarity of what God's word says here. Some demons are more evil than others. And there are apparently even different abilities that these demons possess. Here in verse 14, we see that this demon that Jesus drives out in this verse is described as mute. And when this mute demon leaves his host, now his host is able to speak once again. Other individuals that we've encountered in Luke's gospel have caused, for example, individuals to gash themselves or to throw themselves onto the ground or into the fire and so on and so forth. And Jesus describes in verse 26 that more than one individual can, can actually, more than one evil spirit can inhabit one individual at a time. I mean, that's the example we saw as well in the, in the Gerasene demoniac. As Jesus went to the area of Gerasa and there he encountered this one man who had a legion of demons that were within him. And more than any other time in the scriptures, during the time of Jesus' ministry, we find that there was a heightened activity among demons. They saw the battle that was coming their way. And it's like when you take a rock and you throw it at a hornet's nest, things get stirred up, right? Hopefully none of you have ever learned that from experience, but maybe you've seen videos where the hornets are going to be stirred up. They're going to be binding together. They're going to be seeking the threat which is against them and moving all of their artillery to try and stop that threat. And so that's, I think, what we see as the example. When Jesus comes and he invades the enemy's territory, 
He comes as the Son of Man, bringing judgment against them. He comes establishing a kingdom that will ultimately bring their demise. And so they are stirred up. And when it comes to demons, I simply urge you to be aware of them and be aware of the spiritual warfare that is going on around us as these demons continue in our midst. But I also want you to know that the powers of light are stronger than the powers of darkness. And so the one who has committed his or her life to Christ has no reason to fear demonic possession. But again, Luke's focus is on the response to this miracle and the people who were wrong about Jesus. So as we consider their words and their deeds, I want to share with you now five questions to consider how you could be wrong about Jesus. Five questions to consider how you could be wrong about Jesus. Here's the first one. What if you're wrong about the source of Jesus's power? What if you were wrong about the source of Jesus' power? That was certainly the case for the individuals who speak out in verse 15. We're not told by Luke who these individuals are, but Matthew and Mark both have parallel accounts of this event. And Matthew attributes these words in chapter 12 and verses 22 and following of Matthew to the Pharisees, whereas Mark, starting in chapter 3, verse 20, attributes these words to the scribes. To this, we can add that Jesus was often found engaged in calling out the hypocrisy of these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, as we get later in chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, we're going to find that Jesus lays a verbal whooping on both of these groups, starting out in verse 39, all the way through the end of this chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees. So we might ascertain then that it's these individuals who are the ones who are saying that Jesus is doing this thing that they say here in Luke chapter 11, verse 15. But, but ultimately, Luke doesn't draw our attention to that because that's not the important thing that he wants us to notice here. Ultimately, identifying who that said these words is not as important as the words that they said. And in verse 15, we see those words. These individuals make the accusation that Jesus is working for Satan. In verse 15, we read that some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, the, the name Beelzebul is not a common one. Actually, we don't find it anywhere in Scripture apart from these gospel accounts of the same event. Uh, but th- this word be- Beelzebul ultimately comes from a couple of words that, that might help you give an understanding of who's being addressed here. One is the word Baal. Of course, Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. So often in Scripture, that word literally means Lord. But so often in Scripture, Baal was the god who the people of Israel were torn between. You, you could think of him as kind of being like the chief adversary of the God of heaven in that people were constantly trying to decide between worshiping Baal and worshiping the Lord Almighty. So we've got Baal who is this false God. And then the, the latter half of that word, Zebul, of Baalzebul, means exalted dwelling. So you can see how this name, when you kind of combine this together, means something like the exalted dwelling of God's chief adversary. And by this word, the Pharisees, or whomever was using this word, were accusing Jesus of working for Satan. They made an accusation about the source of his power. And they were dead wrong. And Jesus confronts the sheer sheer ridiculousness of their accusation verses 17 through 19 that's where he says to them any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls if satan also is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand and that makes sense to us right i mean that's a pretty clear sort of obvious expectation why would satan deputize jesus to wreak havoc within his own domain if satan was employing someone to break apart his kingdom by driving out demons the 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 minions of his kingdom the satan would ultimately be defeating himself and none of us would expect satan to go to battle against himself that would be self-defeating because a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste as jesus says here 
But you know, I wonder how many times in the church of Christ, we ourselves forget this truth. How often do we find ourselves within the churches of our land in the midst of division and in the midst of strife within the very church that Christ himself has given his body to purchase? Some of you came to New Vision for that very reason. that The church that you were a part of was bogged down with division and strife and backstabbing. And, and as, if we're honest, I'd say that a lot of us were a part of that strife at one point or another when it comes to the life of the church. But my friends, it ought not be so with the body of Christ There should be no division within this kingdom that has come to us because our king compels us toward unity. Our king compels us toward kindness toward one another as we champion together the mission that he has called us to carry out. And oh, I hope you're not getting bogged down in making your brother or your sister into an enemy. Now there are times when wrong-headed doctrine necessitates a split within a church there are times when individuals who are actually wolves within the flock need to be called out and doctrine needs to be preserved and we need to be ensured that we are staying on task with the word that the lord has given us but as a whole those of us who are committed to christ and his word must seek to be unified in our pursuit of his kingdom objectives Anything less than that will tear down what Christ has given himself to build up. And the scribes and the Pharisees were wrong. They were wrong in their understanding of Jesus' power. And oh, so many people in our day and age are wrong about the source of his power as well. So many people want to say that the power of Jesus that's on display in the scriptures is nothing more than the creativity of early Christians who wrote the Bible. They say there's no such thing as miracles. These stories, they're all just made up stories. They think they have a handle on the source of Jesus' power. But think about this. Why would Jesus' early followers design a story like this? Why would they put together a miracle like this and then describe how the religious elites explained it away as a work of Satan? That would be a foolish thing for a Christian who was trying to win individuals to Jesus to make up. And in these verses, the religious elites don't question one thing. Did you notice? They don't question the authenticity of what Jesus is doing. They they cannot question the fact that Jesus has actually just driven a demon out of this man who was previously unable to talk, and now he's able to talk. They can't question the authenticity of the miracle. They knew a miraculous thing had just happened through the ministry of this man. They couldn't deny that he could work miracles. They could only legitimately challenge who the source of those miracles might be. And friends, if you take an honest look at the historical accounts of Jesus, you're going to have a hard time discrediting the fact that Jesus of Nazareth performed great miracles that literally divided history in two. And if you are of the mindset that Jesus never performed miracles, but that these are just fancy stories that are made up by his followers, you're going to find that you have a hard case to prove. And I just want to ask you, if that's your mentality, what if you're wrong about the source of Jesus' power? What if he really is the representative of God who made you and loves you and longs to redeem you? Are you willing to cast those preconceived notions aside? What if you're wrong about the source of Jesus' power? That's the first question to consider how you might be wrong about Jesus. Here's the second. What if you're wrong about the sufficiency of Jesus' revelation? In verse 16, we read that there were others who were demanding from Jesus a sign from heaven. So not only is there this one camp that's claiming that what Jesus is doing is a result of Satan's power in his life, there's another camp that's saying, We want more. We want to see a sign from heaven. Now, in the Bible, God would often confirm what he was doing through signs and wonders. And he did that all over Jesus' ministry, right? Individuals 
who knew about what Jesus had done followed him around and they were eagerly awaiting the next miracle that he was going to perform. Think about when Jesus fed the 5,000. People began to follow him around, wanting more food. And so many individuals who followed Jesus from place to place witnessed amazing miracles, like the healing of this demon-possessed man that just happened here in verse 14. But they were never satisfied. They were never willing to consider the work that he had done as being sufficient to confirm for them that he was who he said he was or that he was worthy of their departure from their own understanding of God, that they might commit their lives to him. And that's what's happening here. The imperfect sense of this verb translated, word demanding in verse 16, as they were demanding a sign from Jesus, implies that these individuals were constantly requesting this curiosity of knowing who Jesus was without ever being satisfied with the results that they had seen in the works that he was doing, such that they would be willing to commit themselves to him. You would think that these individuals had seen enough. I I mean, even if they had only seen this one miracle that happened here in verse 14, surely they would have seen enough to know that God was at work through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus makes this so clear in verse 20 where he says, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, the finger of God, is an interesting one, by the way. There's only two other instances in Scripture apart from this account where that phrase is used. And they're both in the Old Testament. One of those is when God is delivering his people from Egyptian slavery and he casts these ten plagues. And as the ten plagues are cast, Pharaoh is an effort to try and discredit Moses and discredit the God who is working through Moses to set his people free. Pharaoh gets his magicians on board to do something that would replicate these miracles. And with the first handful of miracles, that happens. The magicians are able to do something that mimics the work of God. But then there comes this plague of the gnats, which you would think, you know, goodness, that would be an easy enough one for us to to mimic, right? All of us can find opportunities. You, you You leave a bad dish out for long enough, you'll have a plague of gnats in your place, right? But, but here the Pharaoh's chief magicians were unable to carry out this miraculous sign. And so they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. That's the same phrase that appears here in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Then after the Exodus, when God gave his law to the Israelites through the Ten Commandments, we read that God wrote those commandments with the finger of God. Those are the two other places where we see this phrase echoed in the Old Testament. And when God's finger is at work in the Bible, it's clear that he is at work in revealing himself. Likewise, here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus and his acts are solid proof of God's revelation that is flowing through his earthly ministry. And through these works, Jesus is revealing that God desires for his people to be called to himself. And and it conveys what he desires of them. Jesus' ministry is all about conveying that God desires for individuals to come to him and to follow him. But some people were never content with the revelation they received. They wanted more. They wanted God to give them a more personal message. And we see that today, do we not? There are many people who will not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, unless God himself appears to them and gives them a personal, hand-delivered sign. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you believe that Jesus could have been God's appointed Savior, but you've been holding out for a sign that that's the truth. Maybe you've prayed for God to reveal himself to you in a greater sort of way. But my friends, I want to tell you that's a needless pursuit. God has already revealed himself to be at work in Christ, the very Son of God, to a great enough degree for you to place your trust in him. To demand any more than that is simply self-centered arrogance. And God doesn't command us to believe through a faith that is based on irresistible truth. He does not submit to our human demands for verification. 
If you're waiting for God to reveal himself in a greater way than he already has so that you can be sure that he has sent his son to rescue you from eternal peril and to be king over your life, you are quite simply wasting your hopes. Because faith must be willing to act on the existing evidence, not hold out on a determination until new works are seen. And the followers of Christ are those who have decided to believe what we cannot see. We have decided to act on the abundance of evidence that already testifies to who Jesus is. And that may seem crazy to some people. They may wonder how we could ever believe that a man walked on water or calmed a storm or drove out demons. But my friends, if you think that's strange, know this. We Christians believe stranger things than this. We believe that a guy who was dead in the grave for three days rose again from the dead. Russell Moore, who's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, he had a conversation with an atheist who identified herself as a lesbian progressive activist. And and then, then he recounts this conversation in one of his books. But this activist peppered Moore with questions concerning sexual behavior. She said he was the first person that he had ever talked to who believed that sexual expression should only occur in marriage and that marriage was to be between one man and one woman. And then she said, so do you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, to those of us who are out here in normal America? Now, Dr. Moore smiled and then replied, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me, too. But what you should know is we believe even stranger things than this. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. And my friends, we believe these things because God has revealed these things. And God has confirmed these things through the works of this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and performed miracles, who came and conquered the grave, who came and ascended and lives forevermore now. My friends, we serve a risen Savior. And his life is why we believe this word. And friends, there's an abundance of evidence about what Jesus has done. But we're also convinced that the revelation that he has given us is sufficient. And Jesus says here in verse 20, I cast out demons by the finger of God. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I believe that. Do you believe that, my friends? Do you believe that the kingdom of God has come upon us? I believe that he worked great miracles and that he showed that God's kingdom has indeed come. Is the revelation that we've received enough for you to believe this same truth? Or are you waiting for something more? And if you're waiting for something more, what if you're wrong about the sufficiency of Jesus' revelation? That's the second question. Consider about how you could be wrong about Jesus. Here's the third. What if you're wrong about the extent of Jesus' strength? Our culture portrays Jesus as this sort of wise teacher who was peaceful because he had to be peaceful because he was weak. But that's not the Jesus that's revealed in the scriptures. God's word shows us a different story. God's word shows us a Jesus who overturned the tables of the money changers as he drove them away with a whip In fact, Jesus uses a parable to show us his own strength in this very passage we're looking at here in verses 21 and 22. Jesus talks about a strong man. And in the context of this accusation he's received about how individuals are accusing him of being doing his work by the power of Satan and how he's driving now a a demon out, we know that the strong man that Jesus is talking about here in this Verse is none other than Satan himself. And Satan is strong, my friends. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. But there's one who's stronger than he is. Jesus says that a strong man, fully armed, guards his house. His possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he had relied. And distributes his plunder. You see, Jesus is showing us here, my friends, that he has come to overpower the devil. 
He has come to win the victory in the cosmic battle over your soul. And as he tears demons out of possessed individuals, he's showing that he has the power over the forces that hold this world captive. Jesus is tearing away Satan's armor, and he will one day soon distribute his plunder in a kingdom with no end. And you may be here today, and you may be going through a trial. You may feel like you're in it all alone. You may have considered crying out to God for help, but then you looked at your need and you said, ah, I feel helpless. There's no way that God could address this thing that I'm going through. But I ask you, what if you're wrong about the extent of Jesus' strength? This passage reveals that we're living in a territory that is currently occupied by an enemy. This world belongs to the one who created it. But the sin of our own kind has caused us to fall into the enemy's hands such that we live under his tyranny. And anywhere the work of Jesus is going on, these two kingdoms are at war. But friends, hear me on this. Jesus is more powerful. Don't underestimate the extent of his strength. Maybe you're struggling with some addiction. Maybe you feel like you're broken beyond repair. Don't get this wrong. Jesus can make the vilest sinner whole. And Jesus can draw you out of your deepest despair. So trust in him. Trust in Jesus. And I say, what if you're wrong about the extent of Jesus' strength? That's the third question to consider how you could be wrong about Jesus. Here's the fourth. What if you're wrong about the essence of your need? You know, Jesus can clean up your life now. But he has so much more than just that to offer you. And I fear that a lot of times individuals come into church and they decide to give the life of a Christian a try without ever calling on Jesus to be Lord and Savior. They learn the good moral things that Jesus teaches and they try to live according to the example of Jesus. But in the end, they find themselves falling back into their former patterns of sin. And this leads them to despair. And many times they find themselves worse off than they ever were before giving this Jesus thing a try. That's similar to what Jesus describes here in verses 24 to 26. He describes a situation in in which an unclean spirit has gone out of a man. In fact, after the spirit has left that man, his house is swept and it's put in order. But that's a problem. For this man, because this man has no security to protect his clean, orderly house. There's nothing to keep that unclean spirit from coming back. And so Jesus says that that spirit who has left this man goes through waterless places. Places where mankind would not be. If there's no water, you're not going to find mankind in a place. Because we need water to survive. This spirit goes through waterless places, finding no place to rest. Because demons are ultimately, as we've talked about already, what are they looking for? They're looking for individuals that they can cause harm to. So when that spirit finds no such thing, he comes back to this same one. He comes back to the one who has cleaned up his act. He finds things clean, but he doesn't find them protected. And so he brings with him seven more spirits more evil than himself. And Jesus says when the demon is booted out, it returns to find everything swept and ordered. It probes for weaknesses. It finds that there's no security system in place. There's no opposing force. So it calls in for reinforcements. It calls the buddies over. Hey, let's, let's hang out in this place, right? And they go and they live there since so the state of this man is worse than it was at first. And you see, when people only try to produce the symptoms of Christianity, when they only live the good moral life, when they only put on the external display of what a Christian ought to be, they have a wrong understanding of the essence of their need. And are you there, my friend? What if you're wrong about the essence of your need? What if you don't just need a good moral teacher? What if you don't just need to clean up your act? What if you're hopelessly bound for hell and nothing short of yielding your life to the grace of Christ through the gospel will make an eternal difference for you? Friends, I want you to know that Jesus has come to meet a greater need. He didn't just come to clean up your act. He came to save your soul. 
He came to usher you into the Father's presence that you might enjoy eternal peace. Jesus came as the just one in the place of the unjust. He came as the sinless one in the place of the sinner, bearing God's wrath that you and I deserve, that we might be reconciled to God. We might have peace with him. And that's so much greater than just enjoying a good moral life here and now. Because, friends, that good moral life will come to an end. And then what are you going to have? And so I plead with you, throw your life to Jesus. Yield your life to his control. Let him be your Lord and Savior. He will save you, my friends. Jesus came to save. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. This is God's promise for you through Jesus, that he's come to give you something more than just cleaning up your act. And when you yield your life to Christ, you install a spiritual security system, my friends. When you trust in Jesus, the very Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within your body. Your body becomes, as the scripture describes it, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, I remind you that our God is greater than Satan. So where the Holy Spirit dwells, no evil can there enter. Here's how Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You see the security system there that the Holy Spirit provides? He seals us until we are there in that blessed eternity with our God. And so I plead with you, friends, if you are here, if, if you're just going through the motions, if, if, if you're just cleaning up the outside, if you're just getting your act in a good moral shape, I, I plead with you, come to Jesus. Come and trust in him. Let him be your savior. Say, Jesus, save me, and he will. Cry out to him. Coming to Jesus may wreck your system. It may, may wreck your understandings. But if it replaces a temporary system with an eternal kingdom, then I say, let my kingdom go and let his kingdom come. And coming to Jesus may very well wreck your five-year or your 10-year or your 30-year plan of where you thought life was going. But if it brings eternal security, then I say, let my plans go. And I ask you, what if you're wrong about the essence of your need? Are you coming to the Lord Jesus? Are you willing to come to him? That's the fourth question to consider and how you could be wrong about Jesus. Here's the final one. What if you're wrong about the purpose of your calling? What if you're wrong about the purpose of your calling? In verse 23, Jesus makes it so clear that there are only two camps in this eternal war that is going on around us. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And I fear that for too long we've been presenting a watered-down Christianity that only says, come to Jesus and have all of your needs met. Hear me on this. Jesus will meet your needs. But he also calls you to be a part of his work. He calls for us to be with him. How do we know we're with him? Well, he says here in the latter half of this verse, he who does not gather with me scatters. Could it be that God's purpose in calling us to himself is not just to meet our needs, but to bring glory to his name? Could it be that he calls us to himself and saves us from eternal calamity so that we can be representatives here on earth in, rep, in rep, reproducing the images of his glory that he's placed within us by showing others the beauty of the gospel? Jesus makes it clear here that those who are with him ought to be gathering with him. And if you're not gathering with him, you are against him. So I ask you, are you striving to win others to faith on his behalf? Are you showing others this sweet aroma of following Jesus? If you're not, I ask you, what if you're wrong about the purpose of your calling? 
You see, there is no neutral ground here. The way we know which side we're on is whether or not we gather with Jesus. To do anything short of that is evidence that we are scattering against him, Jesus says here. And so I ask you, are you trying to gather people to Jesus by sharing with them the good news of what he has done? Or do you scatter them with your silence? And friends, I tell you this, a lot of us need to get on over ourselves and get on board with Jesus. But what if you're wrong about Jesus? Are you willing to yield your life to him? I, I heard a good sermon the other day in which Danny Aiken, who is the president of my seminary that I graduated from, he's still actively serving as the, as the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary now. And he was telling of this atheist friend of his named Mike Bryan. Now, Mike Bryan actually spent six months in an evangelical Christian college known as, as Criswell College. That's where Aiken taught back in the, in the 80s. And after Brian spent those six months here at Criswell College, he wrote a book called Chapter and Verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. Now, in his time at Criswell College, Brian went to classes as an atheist. He went to evangelical Christian classes. He went on a mission trip. He also went to the Southern Baptist Convention. He went to a popular pastor's conference. So at the end of all of that, as he sat down for dinner with President Aiken, uh, Dr. Aiken had the opportunity to ask this atheist friend a question. He said, you spent six months with us. You've listened to us teach. You must have heard the gospel shared with you about 200 times. What's the bottom line? And Aiken said that without hesitation, his friend, Mr. Bryan, replied, that's easy. The bottom line is the resurrection. Because Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Number one, there is a God. If he rose from the dead, there is a God. He is that God. The Bible is true because he said that it's true. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And number five, he makes all the difference. And my friends, that's pretty good theology. That's what Dr. Aiken said in his message. So Aiken looked at him and he said, but you're still not a Christian. To which Brian said, no, I am an atheist. I don't even believe that supernatural things can happen. And Aiken said to him, okay, well, let's just acknowledge that I'm this backwards, dumb, naive, fundamentalist Baptist preacher who, who believes in his stupidity that Jesus rose from the dead. So help me out. Help me finally come to see the truth. Tell me and convince me of what really happened. And this friend, Brian, looked at him and said, I don't know what happened. He said, I've studied this with you for six months, and I'll admit to you that the evidence overwhelmingly points in the direction of an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. He said, but I'm an atheist, so I guess I would just have to say to you that I will suspend my judgment for now. Aiken spoke to him with these somber words. He said, your problem is not with your head. Your problem is with your heart and with your sin. He said, I hate to think that you would go to hell on suspended judgment. And so the question that's before all of us here today is, what if you're wrong about Jesus? What if in your evaluation of things, maybe even in the context that you were brought up in, maybe it's the school that you attended, maybe it's some professor you had who tried to convince you that the things of God were not true. What if you're wrong about Jesus? What if he really is the very son of God who came to perform miracles which confirm that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Are you willing to align your life to his demands are you willing to come to him by faith and say Jesus save me Jesus be the Lord of my life because that's what this passage calls each of us to evaluate let's just have a quick word of prayer can we Father these are rich truths each of us comes here with some level of baggage. Uh, we're all here. None of us is perfect. None of us had a, a flawless understanding of you before coming to this passage here today. None of us will have a flawless understanding when we depart from here today, Lord. 
But God, I, I gather here to shepherd this flock that you've called me to because I believe that you have granted a revelation that is true. And I believe you've granted a revelation that is sufficient to save anyone who's gathered in this room. God, I don't believe that there is a soul in this place that you can't reach with the power of your grace. I cling to these truths. If I was preaching in this context with any belief other than that, then Lord, I believe I would be a sham. And yet, Father, when we bring this baggage, when we bring this context, so often for some of us, Lord, that can be a hindrance for us. We come and we behold your truths, but we will not cling to those truths because, God, we think we've got it all right. And, God, I just pray that in the individuals who gathered here on this day, if, if there are individuals who are apart from you, because they would not be willing to consider whether or not they might be wrong, God, I could just pray you'd thaw that icy barrier away now. That by the power of your Spirit, you would call individuals to recognize that Jesus has done great things that jesus is a wonderful savior that this one who has risen from the dead has authenticated your very plan for all of mankind and father i pray that not a soul would leave this place without coming to jesus without clinging to him for everlasting life and hope and eternity And so, Father, as we close in these final moments, I pray that if there's someone who needs to make that decision today, Lord, maybe there are many individuals who need to make that decision here today, Lord. Maybe there are many of us who have this wrong-headed understanding, God. I pray you'd help individuals to know that this is a safe place. This is a place not of arrogant, superficial, thinking we've got it all together, sort of self-righteous folks. This is a place of broken sinners who found marvelous grace in Jesus. And we welcome others to join us in our own failures, but in Christ's successes. That we might together, O Lord, champion the glory which you've called us to. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.